0: welcome to the glint view we'll be talking about innovative technologies that address climate change and also the fast-growing business side of the carbon economy we're taking a close look at how companies communities and consumers can take advantage of these new opportunities including profiting from their carbon emissions data thanks for joining us
1: hello and welcome to the glint view podcast have you ever looked at a building And, you know, just get mystified at the engineering, the architecture, or simply wonder how it's actually being held up. Well, this episode will be focused on just that, the story of lessons learned from greening the building's industry and transforming how we're using energy today. I'm accompanied with Glint Chief Revenue Officer, Chiang Nua, and I'm going to defer to Chiang to introduce our illustrious esteemed guest, Christine Irvin.
2: I'm excited to be here with Christine Irvin today. She is one of the board members here at Glint, and she was the US Assistant Secretary of Energy under the Clinton administration and the first president and CEO for the US Green Building Council that developed the LEED certification system that's being used all over the globe today. And she brings a unique perspective from both public and private sectors on transforming green energies in building industries and how that's going to relate to the emerging industries that we're dealing in with today with sustainability.
1: So, okay. Sustainability guys, we've heard this over and over again. And I think it was like, kind of like a trendy little thing, but I think it's not really a trend anymore. It's a thing. It's like a real thing that's going to be lasting and it's going to be affecting our life forevermore.
2: Yeah. It is. And some of the unique thing that's happening now today is the fact that the SEC is introducing some new regulations. I say new, but it's actually been around for a while. They're actually going to start to look at understanding how emissions companies are generating their emissions, how they're measuring it, and then how they're reporting it. Uh, Those decisions are probably being made this year. And that's why it's important to have Christine here because she's been through many of these typical exercises before when we talk about public and private se- sectors working together to conform or create a new standardization for green energy or, or emissions in general.
1: Okay. So, but we, I mean, so I know nothing about, you know, emissions and energy. I'm really learning a lot, so much from you guys on this. And it's, it's stunning. Okay. Because I, guess in my head, I thought it always existed. I always thought standards always existed. And Christine, I guess, help me understand, because that's clearly not the case. You have the warts and scars to, (laughs) to, to tell us. I mean, can you just do a little quick background? Like, how did you even get into this segment? Because this is fairly new, but yet at the same time, not.
0: Yeah, right. Well, first, it's great to be here with you. Yeah, and you know, I'll always take an opportunity to talk about green buildings and green energy and sustainability. So, thanks for that. No, the um, I got involved with the buildings industry and then eventually USGBC when I was in the Clinton administration. And at the time, I had this billion dollar portfolio of technology development that covered all the economy so it was transportation and manufacturing and so forth and buildings. And I'll never forget the day that a senior engineer looked at me and said, Christine, if we designed airplanes the way we design buildings, they would never get off the ground. And it was such a clever way for him to describe the circumstance of that industry because it was nothing like aerospace. It was a big, sprawling, fragmented industry with relatively low profit margins, which meant there was little money going into R&D, which meant there was less innovation. And when there was innovation, It had difficulty moving throughout the industry because it was so fragmented. The bottom line was that it was an inefficient building or industry for building buildings. And then what they produced was inefficient in terms of how they used energy and water and materials. So a friend of mine who created the first renewable energy venture capital fund looked at that situation and said, oh, this is great. It's so inefficient. We can make a lot of money on this. And so You know, that's what was really compelling to me. And at the same time, there was this industry group that saw the same potential of making buildings better and making business opportunities out of it. So when I left the Clinton administration and they offered me the job of president and CEO, I jumped at it.
1: Oh, what a great opportunity. I think when you have almost like, it's like herding cats, right? When you recognize that you are, in an industry where like, hey, do you wanna join a rodeo? And you're like, sure, that sounds like (laughs) a lot of fun. And they're like, hey, by the way, the rodeo is cats. I can imagine, was that daunting to like, when you sat back and said, I'm taking this over, was it something where you said, I can manage this? Or is this more of the, I'm going to like, you know, strap myself in here and hold on to maybe the biggest cat and then try to wrangle
0: them as we go? I mean. (laughs) I'm laughing because it, it was such a kick to move from a federal agency where you had about a thousand employees and a national laboratory and working with a lot of committees on the hill and so forth to go to a young upstart nonprofit where you could make it up as you went along. And that's what we did. Mm -hmm. And as one of my people said, we were building a rocket ship. So yes, it was exciting and scary and everything that it should be when you're on a good career adventure, right?
1: Chang, you know a thing or two about going on rocket rides. Oh yeah, I, I
2: think this is exactly where we are in the industry today. Uh, I think it's extremely fragmented, from IoT sensors to systems that sits that monitors energy to. Uh, computers remoting in and you have manual people doing manual stuff and some people talk about bots and this and that and and i think we are in the energy management space and emission space at the same point at the same reference point that christine is talking about and and i think this is definitely an opportunity for those folks who can innovate and get um i wouldn't say sell but i would say more convince people that the benefits definitely outweighs the investments
0: yeah
1: So let me ask you this then, because I feel like this industry is the status quo works and it's been working. So why fuss it up? And what, why are you trying to bring muck a muck into this world? And I guess what's really driving it in my mind, and I guess maybe this is going to feed into our further conversation and maybe I'm jumping here, but I mean, I can't help but think that building, the building sector does play an important role in this conversation we're talking about with sustainability. So can you, I hear about this, but can you clarify and I guess be more definitive on how does the building sector actually play a role? like what does that mean first and then we can talk about the benefits of it later. but what are we talking about when we're saying the building sector has a role to play?
0: Well on you know on so many different levels this is really the perfect question and why I've stayed engaged with it after quite a few years. First of all you know think of it we spend most of our lives in buildings, where we work, where we live, where we, you know, do business. And so that has a big impact on the quality of our life. But then when you think of everything that goes into a building, think of it as a product with thousands of moving parts, that's concrete and steel and products and everything. You know, that has a huge environmental footprint in terms of climate change. Buildings are particularly important because they, the built environment by itself is worth 40% of emissions. And most people don't know that because of the pie charts that we use. We divide up commercial and residential buildings, and then we use all the materials that go into the buildings. We put that over in the industry part of the pie chart. But when you put that all together, buildings are 40% more than transportation, more than industry. And then when you go to cities, which are the engines of economic growth and the largest source of emissions too, the built environment is responsible for about 70% of emissions. And so that's why you see so much focus on the built environment today and should.
1: Wow, 70% of missions in cities. And I can't, you're just making me think of when I traveled to Bangkok, Thailand, that thing is a like building jungle compared to
0: American cities. Wow. You know, if you want to get even um, more motivated to look at buildings, when you talk about thailand and bangkok and other places that built environment is going to be doubling over the next 40 years so every new building that is put up right now it can be a force for good for climate or it'll be a building that is going to be hard to renovate down the future okay so, um, we've got a chance to get every building right and that's what we should be doing
1: Okay, and then this feeds back into then. So um, we were talking about scope three emissions and like the being being a significant player for the building sector. And I don't want to go too far ahead on that because I've heard scope three emissions before. Can you redefine what exactly what that is before, and then we can swizzle back.
0: Well, my short definition, and Chin, just jump in if you want to, is that it's it's mainly the supply chain. If you look at scope one and scope two. You know, that's what a say a company has direct control over. You're burning oil or wood, uh, burning wood on site, that's scope one, scope two, you are using electricity and using it for operations, for heating and cooling, that's scope two. But scope three, that's about everything else. That's in the materials, the supply chain, uh, that's your business travel. Those are things that you have control over in one way or another, but not directly. Yeah. Is that uh, does that work for you yeah it, it, it
2: does it's uh, I call it the consumables that a business consumes to produce Good. products or goods. It's uh, just like it, I go to the doctor. Uh, the doctor says I need to lose 10 pounds. Guess what? I will have to consume less to lose 10 pounds. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's that's how I look at it. I, I look at it very much like a, a, a person uh, that uh, consumes energy. And so when we start to look at scope two and scope three initiatives, companies and organizations are trying to really understand how, for example, I bought a million pencils for my office. There is a CO2 coefficient associated with that. Am I getting the best utilization out of those pencils? And how? And if I was looking at it from a CFO standpoint, there's some compliance issues that is, is the pencil that I'm consuming renewable? Uh, right. or how, how much of an impact is it in impacting the environment? So, yeah. those, those are questions that uh, the regulators are starting to ask and starting to look at the overall um, view of what emissions looks like from both a commercial aspect as well as a, a public uh, sector perspective. So that's I, right. I, I see that, that that's, that's, that's the challenge is there's just so much information out there and uh, being a former data scientist and, uh, and building a lot of these fancy analytics, at the end of the day, you, you may have a pie chart, but if your data is wrong, you're, you're gonna make the wrong decisions.
1: And, and that is such the critical part, because if you don't, <laughs> I mean, you can pull any data anywhere and conform it to whatever you want to make it look good for your argument. We know this all together about other things in life, but OK, so the public and private sector, as we're talking about this, because it's so critically important for them to work together, is what is that disconnect as far as is there is there true collaboration taking place right now or is this still kind of like a. Yeah, we'll work together, but I still have my own vested interest as a private sector business. If I want to source my materials from a certain location, like how much do I really want the government to tell me how much I can and can't do with my suppliers? In the climate arena or in general? I think right now in just the building sector. I think I'm I'm sorry, I'm kind of jumping back into the building sector here because it's just you, you guys are making me really think about this. I'm still blown away with 70% emissions, like carbon emissions from buildings itself. And so now I'm going back to, okay, let's, it's almost like if you can imagine my head doing the rewind sound, let's go back. So if I'm looking to, uh, you know, construct a new building now with, let's say Leeds, you know, before Leeds was even established, because I think think you have a role to play here that we haven't discussed yet. And I kind of want to go back because it was painful And we need to understand how and where and why that came from. So would you mind sharing that a little bit? Because I got so excited, we jumped far ahead (laughs) than we wanted to. Sure.
0: No, I'd be happy to. And in fact, it's fun to kind of reflect on how those pieces came together. Um, Some of which I can take no credit for, by the way, at all. You know, the first thing that the U.S. Green Building Council did was to address that fragmentation issue. Mm -hmm. Because if you, as I said, if you look at a building as a product with a thousand parts, the only way for them to work together well, to play together well, is if you have all the parts of the industry involved collaborating. And that was not happening. There was no common meeting place at that time for various parts of the industry to work together. And so the first thing they did was literally to get architects, engineers, university researchers, product manufacturers, real estate developers, you name it, they were not only represented on the board of directors, but in the membership. And they were often green champions in their individual businesses. And so this was kind of a a friendly place for them to think about how do we do this differently so that we have a smaller environmental impact from our buildings and also have business opportunities. So that was number one, that was smart. And I think there's a theme there, too, in the climate is that collaboration is key. Uh, second thing they did, uh, their first priority was, what is a great building? And that's when they defined that it was how you develop a site, its energy use, its water use, its materials, its indoor environmental quality, all of it put together. And then that became LEED certification system. And they summarized it all in a one-page checklist. There were tons of technical manuals behind it. But that one page checklist was such a handy tool for practitioners to use with their clients. So that's again, part of the collaboration. There was one powerful element of the LEAD certification system um, that would be great to talk about if if we have time. And that is the way they designed the certification was to have four tiers of performance. It was certified at the lowest level, silver, gold, and platinum. And they had a combination of required things that you had to do, plus lots of optional things. And the brilliance in that, I think, was that it appealed to many different parts of the building industry. If you were a mainstream builder who just wanted to experiment with it but not go far, you could try for certified. If you were the bleeding edge, an innovator that wanted to push the envelope, you had platinum to go for. So that created a lot of traction in the early days and early traction can make all the difference in success. Two other things were really important, I think. Um, One was they created, we created a training and professional accreditation system for people. And because this was a new body of science, a new body of learning. And so if projects were gonna be successful, they needed to have a person that knew what they were doing on the team. And we even gave it credit for having a person. Now, what we didn't anticipate was that that would create an army of practitioners for lead that helped socialize the industry and it generated a lot of revenue for us. So that was very good news indeed.
1: I mean, they're evangelists. You got basically your own cheerleaders built in.
0: They were, and even more than we anticipated. And it was a great opportunity for them as well uh, because they got to differentiate themselves in the market. They had a lead AP after their name, or a company would say, we have this many platinum buildings, Uh, 40% of our workforce are lead APs. It became um, not only a point of distinction, but breaking rights as well, if you will. You know, there was one other thing that was important in transforming uh, the green built environment that is applicable to sustainability and climate as well. And that is just the role of leadership. You know, I will, I remember talking to a representative high up in one of the major car manufacturers who in the early days, and he just really wasn't sure if LEED was going to be credible, was going to work. And then he heard that the Federal General Services Administration was adopting LEED at the silver level for all new buildings, and he joined the next day. You know, it's that kind of leadership when you step out you can have a huge influence on on peers.
1: So you just mentioned there, and that's where I think that tie-in, that collaboration between the public sector and the private sector actually can be beneficial and benefit society overall. So Chiang, I'm listening to this, okay? And it sounds great. And Christine, this is no insult intended, okay? But it sounds uh-huh. very ivory towery. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, look, we we you know, kumbaya together, holding hands, and we're gonna make sure that we're gonna say we're gonna do things. But now you gotta execute. Did does the industry have the technical capabilities to execute on this? Because we talk all day, then but there's got to be one person doing the actual shoveling and you know work. Yeah,
2: I I think that we're at a cusp right now and inflection point because we have a lot of talent out there. We have folks who've graduated um, uh, from American universities and all across the world with a degree in sustainability. They they understand the science, they understand the practice, but is there the infrastructure and data and systems to support them? And this is where I think Glent is doing something very unique that we're leveraging some of these existing legacy systems that already exist. And then we're adding on our flavor of AI and and machine learning on top of that to enable sustainability directors and consultants and analysts to really take that that next step. It's it's one thing to say, hey, we're gonna try to be uh, net zero by 2030. It's, it's a whole nother thing to put a whole business value and practice together, a community with the support system of, of whether that's an accreditation or, or regulatory requirements. I think that's really the next step it, because if we're really serious about climate change and, and sustainability, we're going to have to really start to understand what is it going to take to make that impact and how do we measure it and how do we... Uh, certify it in, in some cases. And so I think that's that's the, that's really where we're starting to see a lot of these regulatory requirements coming down the pipeline and companies themselves are asking, well, who's gonna own this? Does the CFO own this? Does the CEO own this? Who who ultimately has to make these decisions? And then on top of that, the shareholders themselves need visibility to seeing how this stuff works because you and I, if we decided when you want to invest in a green uh, organization, they're going to have to prove that they're a green organization because they're not going to get my money. So it's, it's this whole building of an ecosystem that facilitates this. And, and what's really unique about Christine is that she's done this before. And having her on the board of Glint is extremely important because she's going to tell us you know the lessons learned, the warts, as you would say, to avoid those common pitfalls. And I, and I think that's, that's really unique to position Glint to being where we are and, and going to be in the future.
0: You know, one thing I've got to say is that's one reason why I'm so pleased to be on the board of Glint, because if we were talking about lessons learned from LEED, one, one of their success factors was making it easy and making it credible. So you can't just sign up and say, uh, I've got a green building. I've got a silver green. You've got to prove it. You've got to certify it. It's got to be credible and it's got to be transparent data. And it's got to be a path to making it pretty easy, too, like that checklist that I was telling you about at the simplest level. And I think what, uh, what you're doing at Glint now is making it easy and verifiable, finance ready, so to speak. And we need that in the industry now for climate, because some of this is hard.
1: Some of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, that was your public sector voice coming out. Let me tell you Christine, let's let's be brutally honest here guys. So I, so here's where I, I, I'm hearing both of you guys and I cannot help as a if I were a c-suite person. what's running in my brain is is okay, I get the big message. I get the opportunity to reduce our carbon emissions. It's great for society, it's great for business. You know, Chang. I'm hearing you saying, "Okay, I want to get some tools. I'm going to make some investments to make sure I have the ability, the foundations to execute on this in a way that is both, again, engaging for all my, uh, you know, tools for the operations of the business, but also for the customer experience." So that's a whole heck of a lot of technology going in there, okay? But we got to talk about money. Show me the money. So can we talk about this a little bit? Can we be a little bit painful here and say, look, we both get it. We, I think, all oh, not we be, we both, you both get it. I don't get it. Show me the money, please. So how do I start off with by saying is, um, where do we go from here? Like the investment. So let's that, follow that money is what I'm basically. Sure.
2: I, I, I'm gonna lean on uh, Christine a little bit because before lead, how do we create new products for creating new buildings? right? That launched a whole separate type of industry. Talk about if anything from high efficiency AC units, installations, building materials, composites, stuff that was in existence 30 years ago. And and, and that in itself creates a whole new industry. But Christy, I'm going to lean on you on that because I think what, what you have is more direct experience about the innovation and how those innovation drives dollars.
0: You know, I think one of the major reasons why USGBC continues, why LEED continues and a variety of LEED-like systems in other countries as well is because there is a good money angle. It is following the money. So for example, in the um, office space, class A office space is synonymous almost with LEED, high performance LEED and why? Because there were quantifiable benefits Occupancy rates were higher, turnover was lower, the retail sales rate was higher. If you had a business in a building like that, you found that you could attract the best and the brightest. Employee turnover was lower because they wanted to work for an employer that had those values and in an attractive, healthy building. So it was that business case for green buildings that sustained it and provided those jobs. And you're right about the innovation. Once LEED became a brand and it stood for quality, then so many people benefited. Product manufacturers started advertising and marketing. This product can contribute to this LEED credit. Or if it didn't, they would start modifying it so that it could because they had a new market opportunity. And I think that's key. You know, when we're looking, we're talking about buildings. But one thing that really interested me shortly after I left the the USGBC, too, was seeing that in the mid-90s, there were a whole series of certification systems like this developing in different industries around the world. And organic agriculture is one. And what happened? We had a lot of local organic certification or labeling programs, but they realized that they were fragmented. And that their and that their farmers were not being able to make a good living with it. And they couldn't, um, they couldn't police the claims on organic agriculture. So in this case, they actually went to the federal government and said, we need a national program to build market demand for a more sustainable product. And that's what we see today. In the fisheries, you saw a giant of a leader in Unilever. Recognized that their supply was at risk, their fisheries supply was at risk. So they partnered with World Wildlife Fund to create a certification system that we know as MSC. Same thing happened in FSC, uh, EP for electronics, actually came out of the federal government and then they turned it over to a nonprofit. So I think what we found in the nineties was that there were a lot of groups in different industries that realized there are resources at risk. Government isn't doing it enough, and the market isn't doing it enough. Is there a way for us as a private-public partnership to use market forces to generate public demand for a more sustainable product? And I think that has been really helpful, and there are still... Um, still examples that we can point to that play that role, like in the finance industry for climate. But at some point, and we may be getting to this in a minute, at some point, if the resources are really at peril and it's not moving fast enough in the voluntary partnership, then it may be paving the way for more of a regulatory stance. Mm -hmm. That's that push and pull of the relationship between voluntary and regulatory that I think is so interesting and is really heating up in employment. climate.
1: But it's that push and pull that I think as a C-suite individual that my head is hat on is, I don't know, how much do I wanna to get told what to do if I'm trying to make some money, right? So, okay, so Ching, I'm the CEO and I say, I need you. We, we understand what's going on. Leeds has given us this checklist and we need to be able to fulfill the requirements. We want platinum level. Mm-hmm. So here's the question. When do we tell our company, you need to step up and get going when it hasn't quite been ratified or agreed upon? So do you be proactive or do you lag behind and wait till it happens and be told before you kind of embrace it? I think you guys used a very smarty pants term That innovation (laughs) diffusion theory, I will let you explain that. But what is your suggestion? How can we make our business better?
2: Absolutely. It's a great question. And I've been in innovation all my life uh, with with tech. And and I think you're going to have kind of that curve, uh, the 80-20 rule, as I would call it. Uh, Mm. And actually maybe thirds now because it's uh, 30-30-30, 33-33-33, that are focused on you know, you might be a profitable company because you have a very large customer base. Market the segments can shift very quickly. We know that it's just in fashion apparel that the teenagers of yesterday does, do not buy the same things that the teenagers of today buy. <laughs> we know that for sure. Uh, we, we also know that as technology evolves and matures, the needs and requirements changes. And so that also is a driver. And we also know that the funding of companies through shareholders, investors, customers themselves have a different demand. So if I'm a C-suite person and I'm trying to decide whether to move now, move later, or not move at all, I think what's going to really drive those factors is the customer base, the shareholders, and, their, and the perception in the market. I'm going to go back to my days when I was driving you know, quite a bit uh, pre-COVID. I chose uh, Hertz. Why do I choose Hertz? They're typically more expensive, but when I step off the plane, I know there's a car with my name on it that I don't have to sit and wait in line and it takes me straight to my meetings. I don't have to sit there and worry about what's going to happen. And that level of service, I may not get with some of the other uh, rental cars carriers. And that's really what differentiates is the service level the accuracy, the the demands on my current resources. If I'm a CEO or COO, what's it gonna take to be quote unquote green? Because if it takes a lot of heavy lifting and shifting, it probably is not gonna happen. But if it's a little easier for me to consume, I might experiment and have a group or two in my divisions play with it and see if it's gonna be, make any impact in the markets. And then I may also, if I'm fast forward thinking innovative, I may wanna lean on some of these new initiatives and say, How can I can I create a marketplace for this? Can I monetize this? And having monetized multiple different product software lines in my, my previous past, that's the hardest part. It's a great idea to come out with a pilot or a, 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 a demo product. It's a whole nother thing to to have it ready production, have a market, a marketing plan, and go make the money repeatedly every quarter on quarter. That's the hard part. So, and that's, that's, I think that's where the CEOs, C-level folks are going to still have to understand, this is not a, this is not a science experiment. Some folks might say, this is reality. It's coming. Uh, Whether you're a lagger or you're an innovator, you're going to have to start placing your bets now.
1: Wow. Christine, you look like you're about to add something to that statement.
0: Oh yeah, there are a dozen different thoughts coming from what you were just saying, for sure. I think in the climate arena now, one thing that's gonna be affecting the C-suite a lot and already is, is, you know, we've been talking about these voluntary programs and public-private partnerships. If you look at what's happening in climate and emissions disclosure, as just an example, 20 years ago, we had the first questionnaire given to corporations to identify their emissions. It was backed by 35 investors who saw carbon as a risk to their portfolio. It was the Carbon Disclosure Project, CDP. And it was such a simple concept when you think about it. Send a questionnaire to companies, say, tell us what your emissions are and what you think, what you're doing about climate. (laughs) And I think the reaction for many at the very first was, do you remember that saying, first, they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you. And then they join you. And so now CDP is a powerhouse. It includes cities and states and countries, and they're going after scope three emissions. They're actually disclosing forestry information and water. So all of that is a voluntary private public partnership that has been seeding the ground. And then together with a number of other finance coalitions uh, focusing on climate, I think. What that has done now is to pave the way for my own point of view is maybe the single most impactful development was when the G20 and the Financial Stability Board created a task force to create rules or a framework that would make carbon disclosure, climate disclosure more effective to protect economies. And that was the TCFD that has been so important, mainly regulators. It's a framework for defining and reporting emissions, but also roadmaps for how you need to get prepared for climate. And I think what is so important about that is because here you see the finance industry saying climate is going to have such impacts that it will affect whole national economies. So businesses and regulators and investors need to start building climate into every decision. Mm -hmm. And so that speaks volumes. That is following the money. And that's why you're finding that framework, which was voluntary. Now it's becoming mandatory in some areas, like the UK is making that mandatory for the larger corporations. And that's as Chin was saying, that's why the SEC is moving that direction too. So in ways, does that limit your freedom, your flexibility, or does it provide a level playing field and a direction for helping you reduce risk in your own company and start creating new products and technologies and services that actually will reduce risk and create profit. And that's where I think we are tale of two cities. You know, it's the worst of times, it's the best of times. It's the worst because, you know, we didn't act for climate really seriously enough for decades, and so we're already seeing impacts. But the best of it is I've never seen such an exciting time for people in sustainability to have so much opportunity to be innovative. So I think that's gonna be addressing the C-suite too. Okay. Well, you got me going
1: on that. (laughs) No, because you just perfectly segued to what I wanted to shift it to from now I'm taking off my C-suite hat and talking about the business and what's in it for the business. Now let's talk about the individuals. The folks are actually like grinding it out here in, in the sustainability industry, right? The professionals. And this can range from tenured folks like you that have, you know, again, I don't know why I keep saying warts and all because there's nothing warts <laughs> about you. I'll just say battle scars. you know you've got the battle scars of wealth and wisdom not wealth wealth of wisdom. you have wealth. We all have wealth. okay, but you know, but you have a lot of wisdom right from your experiences. So what if I'm starting out and I'm saying, okay, I've learned, it. I've done my education, I have maybe a few, you know, years under my belt. but now you're going from theoretical ivory tower ing, to actual execution. So can I ask you guys what your opinion is? Is it, you know How does a person in sustainability develop their career? Is there a career path? Can they get to the C-suite? Because it sounds like to me what you guys are saying, it's, it's becoming increasingly important and critical for the success of a business, enterprise, but where do they fit in the grand scheme of leadership
0: path, influence? So you want to take that and I'll follow up? Okay, because I think you're more involved in this in the day to day basis. But I think one thing that's happening is that when you look at certainly climate, but let's look at almost every business um, that is affected by resources. I mean, okay, now I'm going to be ivory tower for a minute here. When you think of what's happening, it's because our market has not priced the value of natural resources. The classic externalities and now we're beginning to realize the cost and the benefit of those natural resources and so as we do what it means really is that we're going to be greening the whole economy over the next decades and that means actually sustainability jobs in almost every part of the business. And so, uh, you know, we used to have small little groups of sustainability experts. Now they're beginning to fan out. Now they're going into the C-suite because sustainability is becoming integral to the business planning and strategy. So that opens the door for so many opportunities. I'll turn it over to you, Chin.
2: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, I was talking to one of my cousins who's actually finishing up her... um, uh, bachelors in accounting. Uh-huh. She calls me up the uh, about a week ago, and she was asking Chin, "What w- do you think they're going to be CPAs anymore? Um, being that the bots are coming in and taking over?" And I said, "Absolutely. <laughs> there's there's always going to be room for humans to do work. And one of those opportunities is that if you have the understanding of supply chain, demand, profit analysis, the the core skills that an accountant has." then you definitely have this core capabilities to understand how to leverage another dimensional factor uh, of sustainability. Because all that is, is just another group of numbers that's gonna be pulled into a strategy. And so being a former data scientist myself, I look at it um, from a couple of different perspectives. I look at it from an operational perspective and saying, those accounting rules that we understand today under the general accounting principles gap, they might change. Those 10Ks, the way that we report a cash uh, balance, PL, those practices might slightly change to incorporate sustainability and climate tech yes. and, 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 and introduce a risk metric in there. So, my advice to her was when you look at this, don't look at it as doing things that we've done in the past 100 years of keeping our books and things like that, looking at it as, as an opportunity to, to engage and do more than just a, a balance sheet and PL. Because at the end of the day, when we start to look at operationalizing this, the C-suite, they're gonna need folks who understand how to analyze this data to identify opportunities and risks. And those sustainability consultants on the ground today, out of fresh out of college, I think they're gonna be the great leaders of tomorrow because they have not only the climate tech, but they understand current business practices and they understand how to leverage the tech today to take those organizations where they need to be tomorrow. And the factor here is the fact that we're going to have 20, 25% more people on this planet, 10, maybe 11 billion people by 2030. I believe that's the statistic. So we got to do more with less, <laughs> regardless of whether or not it's a choice. So this is where I think those those folks, that, that career path is is definitely uh, one of those things, opportunities that is going to be great for the next decade or two.
0: Great advice, too. You know, that was wonderful advice that you have. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, you were just saying that you, we might have to do more with less. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes of Albert Einstein. <laughs> and he says Once we know and, rec- uh, and accept limits, we can go beyond them. Absolutely. And I think that is a key to innovation and creativity that we're going to see. We've rejected, we didn't believe, we denied limits in so many areas. And now we've, <laughs> it's very clear that there are these natural scientific limits and there are laws to nature. But once we recognize those innovation, we can see it already in green energy in so many different areas. It, it's, uh, it, this is an exciting area
1: guys we can keep talking about this all day long and i mean i i i'm probably overrunning this way longer than we probably should right now but i mean christine like I, i'm absolutely just blown away with your experience and we didn't even get to we did the tip of the iceberg of your expertise and we'd love to have you back on the glint view and gosh you know like Chiang, like i mean we didn't even go in, into like heavily into you know we're scope three emissions reporting and where glint really can make a huge impact, right? And of course, it's not meant to be had by any stretch of the imagination, but if I'm a, in the industry of sustainability and I'm looking at how do I articulate myself in a way that I differentiate my peers? How do I speak the language that my shareholders are interested in? And of course, in a way that is going to be palatable because it's always about the money when it comes to the C-suite. And then how do you develop your career in a way that, hey, you know what? Mary here, she seems to get it. She knows what's going on and sees a broader and bigger picture. Maybe we can see her much more strategically as opposed to just simply, oh, here's another spreadsheet that you know, they're buried themselves into. Or, well, I can tell you what the regulations are requiring and here's a checklist and so let me define that. There's so much more value, I think the sustainability careers can really develop into. I mean- Absolutely. I mean, it's limitless. It is. I agree. (laughs) So parting thoughts, and I'm so sorry I'm going to make a stop because, you know, we're going to have to continue the conversation at some points. But, Christine, you know, based on our conversation today, is there something you'd like to leave us with as we just, like, get into understanding where, you know, gosh, the history of of the whole building industry and then coming out to scope three now where supply chain, man, it matters, guys. You got to step in. So what's your words of wisdom to share with us?
0: (laughs) To just seize the moment. um, Know that this is a life-changing opportunity is ahead of us now. I can't imagine having um, more satisfaction in the work that we could do in sustainability, for sure. It's just a matter of finding, I say just a matter, that's not always so easy, but it's a matter of finding out where can I make the most difference? Where do I uh, follow my passion and interest in this? Or where can I get some more training so that I can make my, my impact? But as I, I wish I were starting out right now in sustainability. I'll just tell you that's how exciting I think this is.
1: That's awesome. Ching?
2: I, I think that I echo that. Um, I think that when we start to look at the opportunity that presents itself, you have two choices. Enable your passion and do it. Or you're gonna let somebody else do it for you, and and I think that if you take the initiative, I, for the listeners themselves, take the initiative to learn a little bit more about how sustainability works, and be a part of the journey, be a part of the community, and we we open openly welcome you to joining to joining our goal and, and our focus.
1: Excellent! Yeah. I, I'm so excited, I'm I'm inspired right now. I'm, I feel like I need to be your biggest cheerleader and like tell everyone like just. Scream it from the mountaintops. You don't want me screaming. But that being said, Christine, I definitely appreciate your time. Ching As, Qian, as always, I do appreciate you and, and your expertise and kind of keeping me straight on this. I think this is a great opportunity here to wrap up another great conversation of The Glint View. We'll catch you next time. Thank you so much, everyone.
0: Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Glint View. Don't forget to like this podcast and subscribe. See you at the next episode.